If you have a Bible with you this morning, I want to look at both the Old Testament and gospel texts for today. The Old Testament text is in Malachi, the third chapter, Malachi chapter three, verses one through four, and the gospel text today is Luke chapter three, verses one through six. I want to read both of those to you, and then this morning I want you to hear at least uh, the Malachi text uh, twice this morning. In both texts, and it was hard to choose from, in both of the texts, if you are familiar at all with Handel's Messiah, you want to hum your way through these two texts. There's something about the Messiah that when we hear uh, the word sung in that way, we, we not only hear it, but in so many ways we feel it. Um, it gets deep within our bones. And so in, in just a moment, I've, I've pleaded with Pastor Ryan to help us feel Malachi today. But if you have your Bible, Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 says this. Look, I'm sending my messenger who will clear the path before me. Suddenly the Lord whom you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you take delight is coming, says the Lord of heavenly forces. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can withstand his appearance? He is like the refiner's fire or the cleaner's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. They will belong to the Lord, presenting a righteous offering. The offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in ancient days and in former years. And now turn with me to the gospel, to Luke, the third chapter. And as you turn there, I'd invite you, if you are able this morning, to stand in honor of the Lord's word as we hear together Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. In the 15th year of the rule of the emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea and Herod was ruler over Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was ruler over Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. God's word came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. John went throughout the region of the Jordan River calling for people to be baptized to show that they were changing their hearts and lives and wanted God to forgive this, their sins. This is just as it was written in the scroll of the words of Isaiah the prophet. A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be leveled. The crooked will be made straight <laughs> and the rough places made smooth and all humanity will see God's salvation. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thus saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, yet once a little while, and I will share. dry land and I will share 
suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom he delights in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts.
Thanks. <laughs> Amen. You are dismissed. Uh, thanks, Becky. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, I knew when he was going down on those low notes, I knew that high note was coming. <laughs> Turn back with me uh, to those words, to Micah chapter 3. I got an email uh, the other day, this podcast that I have every once in a while, I'll get these emails encouraging me to add advertisers to it. And I got an email saying, are you looking for advertisers during this December? We encourage you to look at five different, five different kinds of companies. Reach out to those inviting us to lose weight. Those inviting us to exercise regularly. Those who are encouraging people to further their education, to get their finances together or look for new jobs or to get rid of bad habits. Um, in particular, smoking. Uh, I've noticed, and probably you have too, that, that about the time we get the Thanksgiving leftovers put away, both online these days, but also on television, those are the ads that start to run, right? All of those invitations as we think about a new year to, uh, to lose weight, to get healthy, to get our finances and relationships and all those things together. I've noticed for a number of years that oftentimes the ones that seem most persuasive to me have one thing in common, and that is that they offer those things in very quick and easy ways. So usually there's pictures of just 60 days later, and this is kind of what you look like or what you'll be like. But I've noticed a new thing the last couple of years in particular, that a lot of the advertisements have recognized that 
that for many of us, and I'll just speak for me today, but I, I think this is probably true for at least a couple of you, that when we get to those kind of gadgets or those things that we buy, New Year's resolution directed, that we're gonna make an improvement in our life, that, that we do it for a little while, but we find that we, we don't really have the willpower to sustain it. And so I don't wanna speak for all of you, but, but for us, you know, like there's a few exercise bikes and weight systems and systems and various things that have got a good start, but not a great finish. And it's as though this company's realized what we need in addition to those things is we need some help. Like we need somebody to guide us in that. And for a lot of folks, the people who seem to kind of make it through those things most are folks who had the wherewithal or the means by which to kind of hire a life coach or hire a, somebody who while we're working out yells at us or or that we need counselors or we need somebody who leads us through the education system. And so it's interesting how so many companies are trying to kind of grab a hold of technology in an invitation to kind of get that help. And so all that to say, I'm fascinated by, we can no longer just buy a stationary bicycle. We have to buy a stationary bicycle with this giant screen attached and you push a button and somebody comes on and yells at you through the morning to move it. I hope. Or my favorite is that you can't just buy weights anymore. You have to buy this like magic mirror thing in which somebody mysteriously appears and says, push it, push it. Uh, there are these moments where we want something new to happen, but we recognize that we can't do that and we need help. This morning, if you have the Malachi text still open, Malachi is a fascinating book. Um, there's a lot of things that are kind of mysterious to us about Malachi. Uh, we don't really know when Malachi was written or what context the book addresses. We're not even sure if Malachi is a Malachi. Uh, for the word in Hebrew could just simply mean my messenger. But increasingly scholars are convinced and there's kind of a consensus that it is most likely that the book of Malachi emerges fairly late in the Old Testament historical period. During a time when Judah is back from exile, probably some even think several decades, perhaps even after the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, where they've gotten back to Jerusalem and we We've got some semblance of walls built and we've got some homes and the temple is constructed, if not finished, or at least being constructed. And that the kind of, if you will, the, the objects of being back into normal life are there. But the people began to realize, but we're not really back. Like it's not really back. We have all new things and all new walls and temples and buildings. But in particular, we have the same old kind of leaders leading who seem to just constantly go right back into patterns of corruption. And even the priests in this new place to worship in keep leading us down the road to religious corruption. And so even though everything's new, we're back to being the same old kind of rotten people that we were before. And so Malachi emerges and the book of Malachi has seven disputations, seven arguments, basically. The first three are arguments that start with God. And I can summarize them this way. God kind of looks at them and says, 
you know, you're really kind of a rotten people. To which the people respond, well, we're not that bad. And then God says, oh no, you are that bad. And then begins to tell them. The text before us today, chapter three, verses one through four, is the bulk of the fourth disputation. And in this one, it, it moves from being God making the accusation to actually the people having some accusations to make against God. So if you have your Bible still open, this is one of those places where we have an unfortunate chapter break. For the disputation, this fourth one begins actually in the last verse of chapter two. So this is chapter two, verse 17. The prophet is speaking, but he's saying what the people have been saying. The prophet says, you have made the Lord tired with your words. I love that, by the way. You're wearing me out, says the Lord. You say, how have we made him tired? Well, when you say, anyone doing evil is good in the Lord's eyes, or he delights in those doing evil, or, and this is the big one, or where is the God of justice? So this, this dispute begins with the prophet rehearsing lines that he keeps hearing the people say, which is, see, we're back to the old routines. And God doesn't seem to care. People who do evil seem to keep getting away with it and they keep getting moved into power. Clearly God doesn't care. Oh, great. Where is the God of justice? To which then God responds. And this is where our text picks up. And the Lord says, hey, look. <laughs> the hey is there in Hebrew. Hey, look. I'm sending my messenger who will clear the path before me. Suddenly, the Lord whom you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you take delight is coming, says the Lord of heavenly forces. In other words, the Lord says, I get it. I get it. You have all new stuff, but you're back to the same old habits. I get it. You couldn't do this without help. So I am sending you help. I am sending you a messenger. But here's the question. Is that what you really want? For when that messenger comes, that messenger's coming on that screen in front of your bike or on that mirror to say, are you ready for the newness that you actually say that you want? For who can endure the day of his coming? For if he comes and makes all things new, he is like a refining fire. Amen. And he is like soap that will purify and cleanse. And so are you really, really ready for that? It's a fascinating invitation, response to our cries. It reminds me a bit of one of my favorite stories in, I believe it's the fifth chapter of John where Jesus encounters the man by the pool who complains to him that everybody keeps jumping in the pool ahead of him. And he's been paralyzed and he's been sitting there all this time and he can't get in. And finally Jesus looks at him and says, do you really want to be healed? Which I always find such a fascinating question. Do you really want to be made new? If you turn over to the gospel text for today, which last week, the first Sunday of Advent, we recognize that the first Sunday always begins basically by telling us the end of the story. 
It's fascinating that the second week always jumps to texts around John the Baptist. For Advent is really a season about preparing for the coming of Christ, being ready, prepared for this help that is going to be sent. One of the reasons these texts are paired together is because in Christian history, writers and scholars and theologians began to think and see and interpret the expectations of even somebody like Malachi about a messenger who would come, a figure like Elijah began to see that fulfilled, or maybe it's better to say, sometimes when we say fulfilled, it sounds like predicted, but really filled full. That this kind of messenger that would come in Malachi's day, that would come but make all things new, that certainly John the Baptist fills that full in the fullness of time. But in the gospel text for today, in chapter 3, Luke gives us two, two contexts into which John the Baptist comes. The first context is historical. And so Luke, actually for the second time, gives us a whole list of, of rulers and leaders of the day. And look at the list again. We get the emperor, Tiberius, Pontius Pilate. We get Herod, and we get Philip, and we get... Lysanias, and we not only get secular leaders, both Roman leaders and Jewish secular leaders, but we also get religious leaders. This is the time of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, it may very well be that Luke wants to try to give us a time frame by which we can imagine this happening, which probably scholars think is somewhere around AD 28 or so. But probably much more important than just giving us a date for the beginning of this ministry of John the Baptist and then Jesus is to give us a context that says, much like we will hear in the Christmas story in a couple of weeks, in those days, those days of Caesar Augustus, all the world was being taxed. That it's a reminder that the people in the first century were facing circumstances very similar to the situation that those that Malachi addressed faced, situations where they were unhappy with the situation that they found themselves in, both being oppressed and pushed and oppressed by rulers and not fully free. But not only is that true of the Roman Empire and these Jewish leaders that they have put in place that seem to take more from Rome than they care about the people they've been They've been tasked to oversee, but even to the temple system, Annas and Caiaphas, the whole thing's just kind of a wreck. It's a mess. And it's very important, I think, for Luke that many of those names will show up again. And not just in the Gospel of Luke, but also in the book of Acts, we will see how they not only put their imprint on the life of Jesus, but how they put their imprint on the early church. So this is a time when God's people are saying, enough, this is just enough, this is enough. And into that historical context, then comes a theological context. Verses four, five, and six in chapter three, Luke quotes Isaiah chapter 40. I have told you this already. I will tell it to you at least once a year, probably more like two to 19 times a year. But I... Isaiah chapter 40 is one of my favorite texts in all of scripture. 
Again, we should have had another aria today of the cruel kid straight. But that wonderful line that opens, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. But this is what I will say to you. Anytime you get to Isaiah 40, just stop for a moment and go back to Lamentations chapter 1. Read Lamentations chapter 1. Laments, cries, weeping that comes out of a time of exile. Because in chapter 1, there is a phrase that gets repeated over and over and over again. Underline it when you read it. It basically says this, Jerusalem weeps in the night. And here's the line, there's no one to comfort her. All her lovers have left her and there's no one to comfort her. She is sitting in her sin and there's no one to comfort her. So over and over again and again in Lamentations, this is the word, there's no one to comfort her, no one to comfort her, no one to comfort her, no one to comfort her. And then you flip over to Isaiah 40, a text that I believe gets spoken about the time when exile is about to end. And you flip over and you hear these words, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Amen. To a people without comfort, the word of the Lord breaks in and speaks comfort. But here's the word, prepare, get ready. Pass an infrastructure bill, redo the bridges. Make crooked roads straight, make potholes filled in. Get ready for this movement of God that is going to happen. And so John the Baptist becomes this messenger who invites us to get ready for this new thing that God is going to do. But there are two things that are so fascinating about John the Baptist that I wanna deal with really quickly. And the first is this, what John does. He baptizes people out in the Jordan. I don't have time this morning to kind of wrestle with this, but this actually bothers scholars that John does this. He doesn't have permission. <laughs> we don't know what he's doing. For there's really no kind of precedent in the first century Judaism for this kind of thing, except for maybe two opportunities. If you ever get a chance to go to Jerusalem and go to the Temple Mount, archeologists have, have uncovered what are called mikvahs, or these baths, these places where as people entered into the temple, they would, they would dip themselves in the water, probably because they were smelly after walking up the hill, but mostly as, an, as a ritual purity so that they could enter into the temple. And perhaps that's what John is doing. He's inviting us certainly to repent before we do that. Some think John is out in the wilderness, similar to the ASEAN communities that left everything behind, went and moved out in the caves. And they were, between you and me, a little bit cultish. And in order to join them, you had to leave your kind of old identity behind. So maybe one way to do that is kind of ritually to enter water, to leave your old identity behind and now join this new community. Both of those kind of have hints even in contemporary forms of baptism. But what is most likely and what is important is where John is doing this. He's inviting people out to the wilderness. We'll come back to that in a minute, but coming out to Jordan. Out to the place where if you all go all the way back, and by the way, it's not my fault. Go back to Exodus. <laughs> this is where the story begins. It's as though John is saying, are you really sick of this? Come on out. Let's start at the beginning. Put all the old stuff behind, and why don't we get ready to start all over with God? Are you ready? So come, let's go back to the beginning. Now, one of the things that I find so fascinating about this is that Jesus participates in it. 
that as we will see, Jesus also hears this call to newness from John the Baptist and doesn't just say, well, it's about time you people got ready because now I'm on the scene. Follow me, right? That would be my first. <laughs> I will not be handled. Um, follow me. What's so fascinating to me is that Jesus also hears the call of John the Baptist and does not just stand on the other side of the waters ready to receive us. But Jesus is a messenger who also participates in the coming of this new kingdom. Again, I, I wish I had a long time to kind of go through this, but what I think that said to me this week is the coach that we have to lead us into our newness does not just stand in a mirror and yell at us, <laughs> but as we will celebrate in just a moment, has come among us Amen. and walks with us and talks with us and guides us along life's journey with us. But lastly, John doesn't just baptize, but he does this out in the wilderness. A place where we are called to go, to, to leave everything behind. It's very important. I tried to emphasize it when I read the text. The word of God did not come to the leaders. The word of God came out in the wilderness. To John on the outside and invites us to kind of come to the wilderness, come to a place of separateness in order to live this out, in order to hear this fresh word, in order to be moved into this newness. And here's the reality. We cannot fully enter into newness until we have left the old behind, until we get to that place of wilderness. And the challenge is, and I think this is true of our resolutions, most of the time we cannot change when we simply want to or wish we could. For most of us, change does not occur without some form of forced wilderness. I was thinking this week about um, when I first came to Pasadena back in 2006 as pastor, first couple of years were really fun. Things were starting to rebuild and things were really going. But if you had asked me prior to the last two years, what was the hardest year of pastoral ministry for me? Without question, I would say 2008. Things are going really great. I don't remember if, you've, if you remember 2008. But like everything, the whole economy just went. And so I had all these people in my church in California who are worried that their house just went. That's a flush, by the way. Um, that their house value just went down, that their jobs were uncertain. Like it was this moment where we felt like, oh, we're doing so great. And then it just felt like, oh my word, what do we do? And I started going to all these pastoral meetings. And I, I just remember in these pastor meetings, so many of us were quoting a, a quote from Winston Churchill, which goes like this, never let a good crisis go to waste. <laughs> and so I just remember it became kind of a mantra for us, Brent, like never let a good crisis go to waste, which meant this is kind of our chance in 2008 because we're going to have to stop a lot of things we're doing. So let's not restart them if we don't have to, right? It was painful, but I just remember it as this year where we got it, kind of got to start to do over. Oh, 2008 makes me laugh. This morning, it, it would be great 
if we could become new because we voluntarily enter into the places of wilderness to be made new. Sometimes God's spirit guides us and gives us the strength to do that. But if we had testimonies this morning, many of you would testify that the greatest change in your life came in a time when you didn't mean to get to the wilderness, God took you there anyway. But he was not absent there, but present. And you did not allow a good wilderness experience to go to waste. (laughs) And I know that many of you this morning are in places that feel like that forced place of wilderness, places of loss, places of uncertainty, places of grief, places of confusion, places that feel like just upheaval. I will say what's made me think about it this week is as I think about what it means for us to kind of slowly emerge, hopefully out of these last couple of years. My prayer has been, oh God, don't help us. Don't let us too quickly go back to the old habits and ways without allowing this to be a time that you shape and change us. Don't allow this to be a time where we miss out on the newness that you have for us. And so this morning we we come around the table reminded that this one who has been sent to change us and to prepare us does not just come to stand outside of where we are, but comes near to us and walks with us and transforms us. But this morning as we prepare to go to the table, and, and if you don't have elements yet, as we sing in just a moment, if you'll just slip up your hand, somebody will come and make sure that you have elements. But I would love for us to sing one of my favorite Christmas hymns, A Little Town of Bethlehem. I, I love the first verse that says this great line, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. But this morning I want us to sing both the first verse and the fourth verse. For the fourth verse says this. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. And the song that we sing is so sweet and melodic that we kind of miss the next line. Cast out our sin and enter in. This morning as we come, we are praying that God would use this time, this moment, and for some of you, this place of wilderness to become a refining fire and a purifying soap and to cast out all that is broken so that he might enter in. Would you sing it together with us as we uh, prepare our hearts to gather around the table?
blessing almighty God we hold in front of us very common things just common cup and bread in many ways they are a confession of our own commonness common people who in our own strength cannot become what you have called us to be no matter how many resolutions we make, no matter how hard we try to will ourselves to be holy as you are holy, no matter how many walls we build, new temples we construct, new roads and homes, no matter how much all around us looks new, we find it's the same old us. And so come like a refining fire. Come like a purifying soap. Come make crooked places straight and rough places plain. Come prepare us for the one who walks with us and talks with us, who forgives and who fills us and whose life we invite into our life today. Allow the wilderness of this moment to form not just new, new visuals around us, but may it make us new. So come, make us the body of Christ. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. He raised it, blessed it, and then broke it. He gave thanks and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Would you take this morning and eat in remembrance of him? After supper was over, he took the cup. He blessed it. He said, this is my blood, which is poured out for you to preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Would you take this morning and drink in remembrance of the life to which he has called us? May it be so, we pray today. Make us the body of Christ. And God's people said, amen, let's stand together.
great to be together this morning. Those of you online, thanks for joining with us. Um, just a quick reminder, lots of great things happening during this season. I think today was announced earlier as the last day to sign up for women's retreat, all that kind of stuff, do all those things. But if you've listened well this morning, 
when you're finally sick and tired of where you are, um, God does not just say go, but Christ will walk with us and fill us and move us to where he wants us to be. For he is like a refiner's fire. And he will make the crooked straight and the rough places plain. And your life will be a witness because all people will see it together. And so may the God who keeps making peace himself, may he sanctify us through and through. May our whole spirit, our souls, and our bodies be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who called us, he is faithful. He will not stop until he finishes his work in us. And all God's people said, amen. Go in his peace. Bless our...